evening. God is our rock. As we saw in that song, Rock of Ages, Jesus, Jesus is our rock. He is our steady foundation, and he is the one to whom we ought to trust. There's no rock like our God. There's no God like our God. All the other gods are false gods. There's only one true God, and we as believers must fortify our belief in that. There's only one true God. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we first thank you this morning that there's no God but you, that you alone are God. Lord, there's none like you in all the earth. Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Lord, you created everything that is both seen and unseen. And Father, because of that, we worship you uh, this morning, and we worship you every day. Because, Lord, you are wise, and everyone else is foolish. Lord, you're all-knowing, and all of us are finite. Lord, you told Israel in the book of Isaiah that you are the first, and that you are the last, and that beside you there is no God. Lord, you ask Israel, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And Father, none of us can declare what is to come. None of us can declare what will happen. Lord, there's no God besides you. There is no rock. There is not any. And Lord, may we turn to you this morning as our rock, as our steady and sturdy and stable and sure foundation. Lord, may we anchor our souls in the rock, which is you, which is your name. For all other idols are fools. All other idols are empty. So, Lord, let us look to you this morning as a as a church, as a church family. As church uh, individually. Let us look to you as savior. Let us look to you for hope. Lord, you declared yourself that you are the Lord and that besides you, there is no other savior Lord let us look to you we we often look to our devices we often look to other people as we said um, Friday night that Jesus came to save men from their sins because he is the only savior of souls so Lord let us look to you as the only savior as our only hope as the only one who can provide us with the true hope that we need to live in this world. And Lord, I pray also that you give us strength as we, we, we finish out this year and look forward to next year to persevere with your help, to persevere in godliness, to persevere in holiness, to persevere 
in righteousness, to persevere in prayer, to, to persevere in reading scripture, to persevere in fellowshipping with the saints, not forsaking the assembling of the saints together. Lord, help us persevere in godly things, things that, that bring you glory, things that do not bring a reproach to your name. Let us persevere in fighting against sin. Let us persevere, Lord, in a church that you have called since 2010. Let us continue to persevere. Let us continue to persevere in serving one another and in loving one another and in encouraging one another and in building up one another and in praying for one another. Lord, give us godly gospel perseverance in all those things as we finish out and look forward to next year. And Lord, we pray also this morning for our uh, nation, our leaders, our government leaders. Lord, that they be called to repentance and godliness and holiness of life and holiness in what they legislate. Lord, that you call them to repentance, to salvation, to form a biblical worldview, not a secular worldview uh, with which they are governed with right now. Lord, in the midst of what seems like chaos in our world, there's only one truth that matters, and that should be proclaimed, and that should be believed, and that is the truth that is found in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he has been revealed in your word. And Lord, we pray for all of our authorities that they bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we pray for them this morning, Lord. We earnestly pray for converted hearts. And Lord, we also pray continually for our sister churches, for uh, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, and other like-minded brethren. Help us to persevere in pastoral ministry. The elders at our churches that we all uh, persevere in shepherding the flock of God. And also persevering all of our members that we be faithful to our local congregations. And Lord, continue to be our shepherds, our chief shepherd. May we continue to follow you as we shepherd your flock. Give us grace to do that. Father, now I pray as we come down to this first sermon in the book of Nehemiah, that you send your spirit to feel me, to preach this text well as we look at uh, the servant's preparation. Fill me with your spirit, Lord as I preach this text. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate this passage to us. Make clear your truths and what you call us to do in principle and in application. Lord, may you be blessed and pleased by what is preached and by what is heard this morning. May you be glorified in all that is said. In Christ's name I pray, amen. 
Man, let us turn to the book of Nehemiah. And uh, as you all turn to the first chapter of Nehemiah, uh, I want to mention something as a point of encouragement for you all to to do all we try to encourage our members to share these sermons or you can ask people to subscribe to them. Um, my wife and I, we, we were on our way to Chattanooga last week. Uh, I was on the phone with um, my mother and she told me that <laughs> she's been listening to my sermons and I was surprised y'all um, you know she's probably listening to this right now as I'm talking well when this is uploaded but my mom listens to our uh, sermons and I was surprised you know I told her you know that our sermons are always posted on uh, the uh, podcast app on if you have an iPhone you have Android it's through Google uh, Play Store you can find them there and, uh, of course, on our website, too. But you never know who's listening. You never know who, you know, needs to hear the word of God. And I always encourage you all to share them, uh, share the sermons with other people, especially those who are not believers or who may be in a false church or in a false religion. Uh, it's always good to share the truth of God's word uh, with them. So I just want to encouragement to you all to if you're doing it that's fine uh, just continue to do that with other uh, family members and loved ones and co-workers and so forth and so on you think it's something that they would be uh, blessed by hearing so I just want to share that with you all this morning amen so we're beginning uh, this week I think I handed out the sermon calendar uh, for the next 14 weeks along with your bulletin and you'll see the schedule of, of sermons we hope to end by the last Sunday in March, I think it's March 27th, uh, because the next month is uh, Easter Sunday is on the third Sunday in April this year. And so we, we always do like a three three week um, ramp up to uh, Easter Sunday, you know, the, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, we hope to finish uh, this sermon series uh, that last Sunday in March. And so that is the goal. So. Uh, Nehemiah has about almost 14 chapters, I think 13. Uh, so we're going to spend the next uh, three months in this book. We finished Ezra back at the end of November. And we're going to pick up on Nehemiah and then after Nehemiah and after Easter, we're going to go to the book of Esther. Um, so that is what uh, the plans for uh, the first part of the first half of next year so. I just had a calendar so we can keep up with where we are. So if someone asks you, what is your preacher preaching? You can say he's going through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, it won't be a question about about where we are. So uh, and we'll be able to keep up with that also. So let's look at our first chapter here. It's 11 verses long. We're going to read the text and get into some background and observations and then our principles and then uh, application. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. And it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. 
And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your ears open to hear, I'm sorry, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And may the Lord bless his word. So we see here the introduction to uh, this book. Now, Nehemiah, as uh, you see in the Bible, is in essence a sequel to the book of, es I'm sorry, of Ezra. And in the uh, Hebrew Bible, Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book because Nehemiah is a continuation of the book of Esther. The events took place uh, in sequence. So what we know about Nehemiah as it said in the end, that he was a cupbearer of God. I'm sorry, of the king. Uh, Artaxerxes, we're going to look at that uh, here in a second. But Nehemiah comes after the book of Ezra, and the main events that happened in Nehemiah was the rebuilding of the wall around the city. Because Ezra, you know, they dealt with uh, rebuilding the temple to uh, reestablish uh, worship of God and so Nehemiah is going to be tasked with uh, rebuilding the wall around that city and we'll see why that is uh, important here uh, later on. So Nehemiah at the time of the writing of this book at the beginning was still in Babylon. He hadn't yet made his return uh, back to Jerusalem. So in historical narrative this book takes place after Ezra, and remember the books of Esther took place between the 6th and 7th chapters of the book of Ezra, so 
all three of those books, the timeline uh, is uh, together. So as we look at uh, Nehemiah, just as we did with Ezra, we have to remember how we arrived here. And you always have to go back in redemptive history. You can go back to the book of Genesis with the creation and then the fall of man. But I want to begin here at the uh, book of Genesis that we looked at Genesis 12 and God's call to Abraham because uh, Nehemiah had reminded God of the covenant that he had made that he keeps covenant. So what covenant is he likely referring to? Number one, he's referring to the covenant that God made with Abraham. You look at Genesis, the 12th chapter. This is what God said to Abraham. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So with that covenant that God made with Abram, who later uh, was named Abraham. We know the story of Abraham, that Abraham had two children. The first son was named Ishmael, and the second one was named Isaac. Isaac was the, the child, the rightful heir to this covenant. And then from Isaac, we had uh, Jacob. You had two brothers. You had Jacob and Esau. God has sovereignly chosen Jacob, although it was through his deception, but God had sovereignly chosen uh, Jacob. And from Jacob, we had the 12 sons, the patriarchs uh, of Israel, the 12 sons that represented the 12 tribes. And one of those sons, a named Joseph, ended up in Egypt. And his story is chronicled beginning in Genesis, the 37th chapter, where uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his other uh, jealous brothers. He was sold into slavery and he was picked up by a caravan. He was dumped into a hole and uh, a cistern and, and he was picked up by a cavalry of Egyptians and sold off to Egypt and ended up in Potiphar's house as a slave and he served Potiphar and, and while he was with Potiphar, Potiphar had uh, elevated him because uh, Potiphar saw that God was with him. And of course, while he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife accosted him and tried to uh, force him to lay with her. And he uh, escaped, leaving his tunic behind. And, and she ended up lying on him, saying that uh, he, in, the, in essence, raped her, and he did not. But yet he was thrown into prison. And while he was in prison, the Lord was still with him, as Scripture says. And there were two men of, of uh, Pharaoh who were also in the prison. And they saw that God was with him. And then they promised uh, Joseph that when they came out, that they was going to tell the king about him because uh, uh, Joseph had answered some of their uh, dreams that they had. And then they were out, let out of prison. And uh, Pharaoh had a dream that none of his wise men could answer. And one of them said, hey, there was a man that we met in jail you know, who, who answered uh, uh, dreams, and, and it was Joseph, and then Joseph was let out of prison, and Pharaoh gave him his dream, and he interpreted his dream. And then through that, Joseph became 
uh, in essence, the second in command uh, to the Pharaoh. And of course, during this time, his brothers uh, were still languishing because, you know, a great famine had come through the land, you know, seven years of feast and then seven years of famine. Then after the famine was over, um, through the course of time, Jacob's brothers started coming back, getting food and everything, going back and and uh, Jacob sent things, I mean, Joseph sent things back with them and they brought it back. Then he went back again and told his father about it. And then when they came back the last time, Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers. And then after that, they went and brought their father, Jacob, back. Because Jacob was old and he was blind. He, was, he wanted to see Joseph before he died. And Jacob did die. And they buried him in Egypt. And then Joseph and all his brothers, they settled in Egypt. Then over the course of 400 years, they grew from 72 to over 2 to 3 million people. And then they had this new pharaoh that came in who didn't know anything about uh, Joseph and didn't know anything about Jacob. And they began to oppress these people, God's nation, God's chosen people. And then, of course, through the course of time, God sent Moses to free his people from the slavery of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, God established his covenant with them that he had made uh, beforehand. He gave them the Ten Commandments, gave them other laws, uh, ways to worship him. And, of course, we know as we go through the Bible study, through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, how Israel rebelled against them, but God still preserved his people. And then they make it to the promised land, uh, led by Joshua. And then when Joshua dies, Israel falls into apostasy because uh, they, didn't, they failed to move out all the nations uh, that God had told them to move out. And then you get the book of Judges where it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then after Judges, you have the story of Ruth and Boaz. And what is important about them? They were the grandparents of King David. And of course, in the book of 1 Samuel, you have Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And he fell. And then David, who was a man after God's own heart, David became king. And then his son Solomon. And then Jeroboam after him, and then after Jeroboam's rebellion, God split the kingdom into two. The northern tribes went uh, to the Assyrians in 722, and the southern tribe, southern two tribes, who was Judah, they went to exile in Babylon in 586 uh, B.C., and they were in exile for 70 years. And then their first group came back under Zerubbabel that we read in the book of uh, Ezra, and then the second half of the book details Ezra bringing back two groups of people. And so now we have a another group of people who is about to come back, and that is where we find the book of Nehemiah. So as I gave you that quick overview of redemptive history, I hope you see one thing that is true, and that is that God still kept covenant with Abraham, that he was going to make him a great nation. That although Israel had fallen, they rose and they fell, and they rose, and they fell, and they rose, and they fell. And God punished them by sending them to exile. Guess what? He still preserved his people. Why? Because he made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And so now we see Nehemiah recalling this uh, also. So that's kind of the, the background of uh, this book as we go forward is always good and I always say this when you're reading the Bible always get context always always go back and see the thread of redemptive history I always see the thread of what God has been doing uh, in redeeming a people 
uh, for him. And it's always good to kind of go back and see how God has been faithful in fulfilling his covenants. So just a few observations here. Uh, Nehemiah, number one, he showed compassion and care uh, for his people and the Lord's people when he asked his brother, Hananiah, uh, about the welfare of the Jews who returned unto Ezra as well as the city of Jerusalem. And we see that in the opening verses of this chapter where he, he asked his brother, hey, man, what's going on with, with, uh, with our people down there in uh, Jerusalem? He wanted to see how they were doing. And so Hannah and I told him that the people were in great distress and reproach. The word reproach means shame or insult. And why were they in great distress? Because the wall had been broken down and the gates were burned. And the condition of the wall reflected badly on God's name. And this is why Hannah and I said uh, that the people were in great distress and in reproach. The reason why is because in ancient times, cities were fortified by walls. They had walls built around them in order to keep people out and to keep people in and also to protect themselves during times of war. And so the condition of a city's wall was a reflection of the city's deities or their small g gods according to ancient Middle Eastern culture. So if a city had walls that were torn down, that would show to all the other cities around that the God of that city is weak. The God of that city is impotent, you know, not, not powerful. So it was a shame, it was a reproach on God's name for the wall around the city to be torn down. So upon hearing this terrible news, Nehemiah lamented and he mourned and he prayed uh, for many days. He also fasted uh, before God. And we're going to see in Nehemiah's prayer that it is a great model for the Christian to follow. Especially in its structure. This, this prayer has a structure to it that we're going to uh, look at. And he ends his prayer with him stating his position in the Persian Empire. Uh, he was a cupbearer to the king. And, and that was not a very enviable position. Uh, because those kings were something, there were sometimes assassination attempts on their, their life. And if you couldn't assassinate them by trying to shoot them or anything like that, they tried to poison the king's food. So Nehemiah's job as the cupbearer was to be the one who tasted all the drinks uh, before the king took them himself. So if Nehemiah tasted a drink or whoever the cupbearer was, if they tasted the drink and they they fell sick or they got poisoned, then that protected the king from being poisoned. So he was a very trusted man, but he was also in a very uh, enviable position. He was a guinea pig, so to speak. Uh, so he was the cupbearer to the king. So that meant that he had to be very close uh, to the king. So the big idea of our sermon this morning is that the servant of God responds rather to crisis with a zeal to go before the Lord in adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So we're going to look at five quick principles this morning. Uh, the first principle is that God's servant prepares by looking out with compassion. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. 
Nehemiah's first concern was for the Jewish exiles who had returned uh, to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Ezra. And this was some 90 years and 20 years early. This was 90 years, the, the events of Nehemiah, the beginning, take place approximately 90 years after the first exiles had returned uh, under Zerubbabel. And about 20 years after Ezra uh, returned with his group. So the national identity of the Hebrews was Nehemiah's primary concern. He's not remotely occupied with himself, but he is more occupied with the state of God's people. Although he has such a lofty position in the Persian Empire, empire he was more concerned about his Jewish brethren. And us as believers, with our spiritual identity of being in Christ, we should be concerned with fellow Christian brothers and sisters in this world. Our primary concern should not only be for ourselves, but also for fellow believers. And we see this being exampled in Nehemiah. This was the same attitude that, that Christ had. Nehemiah is a, is a type of Christ as the servant leader, as the servant leader. Paul said this in uh, Philippians 2, uh, beginning at verse 1, he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And how is that being like-minded, uh, Paul? By having the same love, being of one accord, and being of one mind. And he continues with this being like-minded. He says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit or vainglory, as the old translations say. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of us look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this man be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what man was that? A man of selflessness, a man of concern for other believers. And we see this in Nehemiah as he looks out with compassion at his fellow Hebrew brethren. Nehemiah was prompted by an overwhelming awareness of need that he wanted to serve. He wanted to do something about it. He believed the decision was made for them. He didn't sit around looking for the right opportunity. It was already there. He showed the attitude of a true servant of God. He looked out and he made a decision. And he had the right priorities in mind. Uh, people mattered more than things. People mattered more than his position. It was Jesus who told us not to labor for food that perishes. He said that in John 6 and 27. Don't labor for the things of this earth. It doesn't mean that you don't concern yourself with things of this earth, but they should not have top billing. They should not have top priority because those things perish. You have to labor for those things that count for eternity. The souls of men mattered more to Nehemiah, 
more so than the city of Jerusalem itself because if you don't build up the souls of men, you're not going to build up the city. And history is filled with Christian workers who sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of the saving of souls. You have great missionaries of old who have labored in the gospel in places that were hostile to Christianity, hostile to Christ. But they sacrificed their own well-being for the sake of the saving of souls. And the greatest person whoever did this was Jesus Christ. Christ is the greatest example of a servant who looked out with compassion and saved us. He looked out on compassion with those of us who were under the wrath of God. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He looked on us with compassion and he saved us. And we see this example in Nehemiah. He looked out on compassion, with compassion on his people. And he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to spring into action in essence. And God's servant does that. We look out on others. We look out on the needs of other saints. We don't neglect the world, but our first priority is always the household of faith. We always look out for brothers and sisters in Christ and for their needs. And that's what we see here in Nehemiah. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. And our next principle is God's servant prepares by looking up. Independent. So what did Nehemiah do when he heard this news? Did he wring his hands together and, you know, did he go on Facebook and post, and, <laughs> and post it? No, he didn't. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, we don't know as soon being immediately, but in context, it was probably shortly thereafter. He sat down and he did what? He wept and mourned for many days. And he continued with fasting and praying before the God of heaven. God's servant prepares by looking up in dependence now who did he look to dependence from the God of heaven the fact is his immediate reaction to the bad news concerning his people was to go before the presence of the Lord and there are a few perspectives that we can glean from this earnest prayer so number one we can see that he was committed to prayer. Prayer was his natural, immediate response because he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. He went right to his knees, uh, proverbially, and he prayed. It was spontaneous. The theologian P.T. Forsyth said this. He says, nothing mattered more to him in that moment than to be before the Lord in his presence. When we look at Christ, the night before he was offered up, when he was in his greatest hour of distress, nothing mattered more to him 
than to go before the Father in the garden. And we see that in Matthew 26. So we see this in Nehemiah. In his moment of distress, as God's servants, in our moments of distress, our immediate, our immediate reflex should be to go before the Lord in prayer, to humble ourselves, to, to bow our knees to God. But I'm afraid that we don't do that. And I say we, including myself, we don't do that as often as we ought. We don't show our dependence on God as often as we should, but rather we try to do what? Depend on ourselves. We, we try to just tough it out, just grind it out. And that's not necessarily a bad or sinful thing, but if that is what we're putting our hope in, then that is when it's sin because we're not depending on God, but we're rather relying on our own strength. When we hear distressing news, when we encounter distressing circumstances as servants of God, our immediate response should be prayer, should be seeking God, seeking his face. And that is what we see in Nehemiah. He was also genuine in prayer. How do we know? It says he sat down and wept. He sat down and wept. Though he was a four-month journey from his brethren, he wept. Their needs were still close to his heart. He wasn't there with them. He just what? He just heard the news. And he didn't say, oh, well, you know, they're, they're too far away. You know, out of sight, out of mind. And that's what we could do sometimes, right? Well, that's, that's not my problem. You know, that's, that's them over there. You know, we think about brothers and sisters in Christ who are in persecuted countries like North Korea or pretty much any Middle Eastern country or the church being persecuted in China or in some parts on the continent of Africa. There are Christians that are being persecuted daily. They can't have a church like us. And, and we can take the posture, well, that's over there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm free here. I, 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 can't, I can't take my concerns to the Lord for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Far be from it. We're all one body in Christ no matter where we are, no matter where we're located. We all share a common inheritance. We all share a common Savior. There's one God, one faith, one baptism, as Paul said, one God and Father of all who is over you all and in you all. And we can concern ourselves about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are not here with us physically. He wept and lamented over these people, although they were a four-month journey away when he heard that news. He was very genuine in doing it. And he was not the last person to lament over Jerusalem troubles because Christ did the same in Luke 19, I think toward the end of that chapter where Jesus lamented, lamented over Jerusalem. He, he saw the city, and Luke says that he wept over it. 
In fact, it's chronicle here in Luke 19 where he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He talked about how the temple was going to be destroyed because he lamented over them. Just as Nehemiah lamented over his people in Jerusalem, Jesus, we see that in him lamenting over Jerusalem also. Next, he was sacrificial in prayer. He denied himself. It says that he wept and fasted. He fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he went on a fast and prayed before the Lord. He denied himself food for several days because he was that concerned about the Lord's people. And fasting was a time of undisturbed intercession with God. Next, we see that he was persistent in prayer. He prayed for days. He wept and mourned for days. He didn't just do it one time. He did it for several days. He was persistent. It wasn't a quick hit. It wasn't a quick fix time before the Lord. He prayed day and night. Raymond Brown in his uh, commentary on this passage said something that uh, stepped on my toes for sure. He says, prayer is the most eloquent expression of our priorities. It confesses our total reliance upon God, exercises our personal faith, and demonstrates our love for others. Prayer is the most eloquent expression of our priorities. If we prioritize prayer, we'll do what? We'll pray. We'll pray. And I'm sure all of us struggle with that, don't we? I was thinking about it just last night. I was talking to my wife about some, you know, things, uh, you know, I want to improve upon, you know, coming up, starting today, not waiting until January 1st. But one of them is being more uh, persistent in prayer and uh, being a good steward of my time and, 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 and shepherding my time well, stewarding my time well, rather. Because that's what it boils down to. Everyone is given 168 hours a week. How am I shepherding that time to God's glory? How am I using my morning time? You know, just as a, uh, since we are uh, confessing here, <laughs> you know, usually when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is go on Twitter and look at my Twitter feed. I don't do it every morning, but most mornings I do that. And, and sometimes the Lord convicts me of that. I have to put my phone down. It's the very first thing I go to is, is, is what's on Twitter. What's going on? Sometimes Twitter is always a dumpster fire, you know. <laughs> but but I, have to, I, have to I have to catch myself sometimes and say, no, I need to be spending this 15, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes in prayer before the Lord. And then once I realize that I'm doing that, somehow it reorients my day when I begin my day in prayer. It reorients my priorities. It, it really does when I do that. When I, when I put prayer first in the mornings, it somehow reorients my day 
and reprioritizes my time. Then I don't have time to go on Twitter. Then I realize at the end of the day, I don't really miss anything. That's the way it works because you begin to see the priority of spending time with the Lord and how everything else pales in comparison that is not really that important to see what's going on on, on Twitter or even participating in what's going on on Twitter as I, as I do sometimes. So, you know, praying to God, being persistent, reorients our time. It reorients our priorities. And sometimes I'm convicted in doing that. Jesus himself talked about the persistency of prayer in uh, Luke 18 and 1. When he gave the parable about the woman and the judge, he says, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And he talked about the persistent widow. He said, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me and my, I'm sorry, for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, <laughs> lest by her continual coming she weary me. So that was a parable about the persistence of prayer. That judge was an unjust judge, but God is not one whom is wearied by our prayers. But the point of that parable was to show the persistency of prayer and the efficacy of it. To always pray and not lose heart. Nehemiah persistently prayed to God and did not lose heart. That's what we see in him. And we see Christ showing us how to do that also. And then next we see that Nehemiah was encouraged in prayer. He's encouraged by the prayers of those who went before him. He mentioned Moses and how God had made a covenant with him. All the statutes and all the commandments, all the rules that, that God had commanded, he, he remembered that. And he was able to recall God's faithfulness. And that encourages us when we can go to God and, and recall his covenant faithfulness, recall what he has done in the past. That encourages us. When we read scripture and we see the works of God and we behold his works, and when we go to God in prayer, we say, Lord, remember when you did this? Remember what your word said about that? When we pray God's word back to him. When we pray the scriptures. I did a sermon series on that back in 2017 about praying. Uh, I'm sorry, it was a Bible study on, on how to pray the scriptures. That's when, I, that's when I first started learning how to pray the Bible. You're praying God's word back to him. The prayers of the saints of old, especially in the scriptures, should inspire our hearts and minds as we enter God's presence in prayer. The great prayers of scriptures and of saints past ought to uh, be incentives and models for us to follow. Pray biblical prayers. Pray prayers straight from scripture. 
When I was doing the pastoral prayer earlier, I was praying from Isaiah 44. Where God says, besides him, there is no other God. There is no other Savior. All I was doing was just praying the Bible. I try to do that when I do the pastoral prayers. is to, to pray the scriptures as an example to show us how to pray God's word back to him. And then lastly, he was confident in prayer. He focused on eight aspects of God's nature in his prayer. He talked about how God kept covenant. Look at verse 8. Remember the word you commanded your servant? That if what? If you're unfaithful, I will scatter. But if you return, though there be outcasts throughout all the earth, that you would bring them back to the place that he had chosen in verse 10. These are your servants and your people whom you were redeemed. He's their redeemer by his great power and his strong hand. He was appealing to God's own character. And that gave him confidence. When we focus on God's attributes in prayer, it gives us confidence in the person of God, to be faithful to who he is because he cannot cease being God. God cannot cease being faithful. So we can plead to God's faithfulness when we pray. And that's what Nehemiah shows us. These are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Your, 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 your. He's appealing to God and his power, his attributes, his person, his works. And that's what we do when we pray to God. We look up to him in dependence. And we appeal to God's character. We appeal to God's holiness. We appeal to God's faithfulness. Lord, you are faithful, Lord. You do hear the prayers of your people because your word says you do. And that gives us confidence in prayer amen god servant prepares next principle by looking inward with penitence verses uh, 6b the second part of verse 6 confessing the sins of the people of israel which we have sinned against you even i and my father's house have sinned and how we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he wasn't looking and saying those people. He said we. So God's servant prepares by looking inward with penitence. Penitence means sorrow and contrition. That's where we get the word penitentiary from. Penitentiary, you know, a prison place of sorrow all prayer should include confession of our own sins all of them should when we pray to God we confess our sins as we pray to him that should be the first thing we do or the second thing we adore God we express adoration to him confessing who he is what he's done in creation and then we confess our sins to him. The words of Nehemiah we see in this prayer, they reveal the intensity and the realism and the urgency 
of sin. He was overwhelmed by the rebelliousness of sin. And he was honest about his own sins. And the sins of omission, the things that were left undone. You know, we talk about the sins of omission and commission. Sins of omission are the sins uh, uh, resulting in things that we have not done that we ought to have done. He says we have not kept the commandments. That's an omission. A sin of omission. They did not keep. So they sinned by not keeping the commandments. So that's, excuse me, a sin of omission. They show great rebellion against God. He and his father's house have sinned against him. They sinned against God. He says again, which we have sinned against you. That reminds me of Psalm 51, where David said in his sin of repentance against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. When David sinned against Bathsheba, that's uh, what Psalm 51 was based on. His, his penitent psalm after he had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband uh, Uriah killed. And the, the prophet Nathan had come to David. God had sent Nathan to David a year later, uh, by the way. And uh, Nathan told David a story and, and, uh, about a man who took all that another man uh, had. And, and um, Nathan told David that you are that man. Because he took all that uh, Uriah had as king. And he wrote Psalm 51 as a psalm of repentance. And he said in that psalm, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight. Raymond Brown said Nehemiah was sensitive to the fact that all sin things done deliberately or carelessly done or things selfishly or needlessly done need to be identified, acknowledged and pardoned. Even sins that we carelessly do should be confessed. Even sins that we uh, leave undone or sins because of things we left undone should be confessed. Omission and commission. Next principle, God's servant prepares by looking back with gratitude. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. He talked about the faithfulness of God and his covenant that uh, he made with Moses, you know, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That is found in the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. But if you return, then he would gather them. Then verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So while Nehemiah did offer a sorrowful and penitent confession of his sins and Israel's sins, he did not remain there. He did not wallow in the mire. He reflected on God's greatness and his mighty acts performed in past redemptive history of his people. He spoke of God's revelation 
and he spoke of God's redemption. First, he told about what God has said. We saw that again in verses 8 and 9. He recalls God's word to Moses in uh, Deuteronomy 4, verses 27 through 31. He knows that the same God who scatters will also gather. The same God who scatters is the same God who gathers. Nehemiah knew that if God promised to restore Jerusalem, if his people turned back to him, which he did under Ezra and Zerubbabel, then he was capable of doing it with him also. Why? Because what God says, he always does. Again, he pleaded to the faithfulness of God in keeping his word. Man, that is so great. God keeps his word. If he keeps it with one, he's going to keep it with others. What God has done in the past, he will continue to do because he is faithful. That is an encouragement to us. And that is what he pleaded to. He looked back with gratitude at what God did before. And he knows that God will do it again. He knew that God had brought them back under Ezra and Zerubbabel. And so he pled to his righteousness and his faithfulness and knew that he could do it while he was still alive. That's what he did. And that's what we ought to do as we as we plead to God, as we pray to God. We can remind God of what he's done in the past. Because we're pleading to God's faithful character. One of his attributes is that of faithfulness. That he keeps all of his promises. God keeps all of his accounts. He balances all of his books. He is never over and under when all accounts are counted. God always does what he says he's going to do. Whether it's a promise of a blessing or the promise of a curse, guess what? He still does it because he's faithful. Then he recalled what God has done in verse 10. Again, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand who you have redeemed. Nehemiah knew that God demonstrated the trustworthiness and the reliability of his word by the excellency of his deeds. It reminds me of the psalm we read this morning in our call to worship. God redeemed his people by his great strength. By his great strength and by his mighty hand. The great encouragement is that for all their failings and for all their rebellions, God redeemed them still. And you know what's great about that? We can look to Christ. For all of our failings and for all of our rebellions, Christ still died for us. Paul said this in Romans 5. Beginning at verse 6. For when we were still without strength. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us despite us. Christ didn't die for us because of us. He died for us despite us because we were still sinners. We were undeserving. But while we were still sinners, Christ died. While Israel was still rebelling, God what? Redeemed them still with his mighty hand. Praise the Lord for that truth. Amen. Our last principle is that God's servant prepares by looking forward with confidence. We see this in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. After looking at God's mighty works, Nehemiah can now look forward with confidence that the unchanging God, the immutable God, the God who is not able to change, he will not fail to keep his promises. But this requires waiting with prayer. That's what it required. Nehemiah needed guidance. There's no time to be hasty. There's no time to rush. He must continue to wait on God. But he waits on him with confidence. Raymond Brown said, the greatest ministry on earth was initiated with long years in a carpenter's workshop and those crucial weeks in the wilderness when Christ spent time with God and reaffirmed his priorities for the future. Remember, Christ was a carpenter. He made his public ministry when he was 30 years old. His public ministry lasted three years. But he was a carpenter. So in essence, as a, a man, as the God man, 30 years in the carpenter's workshop. And then those weeks in the wilderness, he spent those 40 days and he came out he was ready to go think about John the Baptist who came before him who uh, his progenitor who said prepare the way of the Lord it was a period of waiting but it was waiting with confidence because we knew that the Savior was coming with his ministry with this call to do what repent for the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel as Nehemiah waited God worked sovereignly in the heart of all the Xerxes we're going to see this moving forward as Nehemiah waited God worked sovereignly in the heart of Artaxerxes in order to accomplish his purposes 
So Nehemiah confidently prayed for God to grant him success. That's what he said, right? He says, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And it reminds me of one of my favorite Psalms. I have plenty of them. Pretty much all of them are. But Psalm 27, verses 12 through 14. This is a very encouraging psalm. It says, Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And this is David writing this. He says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. May he strengthen your heart as you wait on him. Amen? A few applications here as we close. Number one, petition God immediately when crisis strikes seek God petition God go to God we have to practice doing that we have to fight against our flesh our flesh wants to depend on self lament over mourn for and confess your sins as we pray to God we lament over our sins we confess our sins to him look to Christ's life as the perfect example when a servant of God should look like. And we looked at examples here in scripture. How Christ did not look out only for his own needs, but also for the need of others. And Paul said, let the same man be with you, which was also in Christ Jesus. To always pray and not lose heart. As Christ prayed in the garden, the night before his hour had come, we do the same thing in our distress. We pray, we look to Christ. He's our ultimate, he's our arch example. And then the Acts prayer method is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's a prayer method that I learned some years ago. We're, we're going to do a Bible study on that again. Um, you come to God in adoration. You confess who he is, what he has done. Uh, the Psalms are a good way to look to that, and I'll be handing out some of this stuff uh, next Sunday anyway. And then we confess our sins before the Lord. And then we go into a time of thanksgiving, thanking God uh, for Christ and his work, thanking God for what he has done. And then we go to supplication where we uh, present our needs to him and also the needs of others. We see all, all of those uh, types here in this prayer this morning that we are read from Nehemiah. Not necessarily in that order, but the theologian uh, Matthew Henry had uh, come up uh, with that method uh, a few years ago centuries ago rather amen so let's go for Lord in prayer father thank you this morning for your word it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path father thank you for the grace that is found in Christ Jesus you we ask you to help us by your power to be good servants to be good prayers to go to you in prayer to depend on you in prayer to confess our sins in prayer to adore you in prayer and to present our needs to you in prayer Father I pray that you bless this word for those who hear it 
that it may bring them to a saving faith in Christ, but they're not believers. And that it may encourage the saints. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.